I think it's safe to say that we are now fully in summer mode. I think we can say that mid-July, right? Um, and I wonder if you ever find yourself fondly thinking back to the days when summer meant freedom, as in freedom from school, freedom from work, summer break, right? Um, as a kid growing up in Florida, summers meant for me freedom from the rigors of reading, writing, arithmetic, to be able to spend every single day at the pool or the beach, or sometimes both. Tough life, huh? Um, but of course, with all good things, summers too had to come to an end. And so when Labor Day rolled around, uh, we started buying back-to-school supplies and stockpiling fruit roll-ups. And, uh, you know, around our house, we'd find ourselves uttering this particular line a lot. Well, back to school, back to the real world, See, we all knew as awesome as summer was that it, it wasn't the norm. It wasn't the real world that we lived in day in and day out. It was the ideal world, right? It was the exception to the norm. Now, I bring up this bit of nostalgia because I think that if we're not careful, we can end up reading the book of 2 Timothy that we're in as a church right now as if it characterized the Christian life as one that's always lived on summer vacation. That is, as if it offered only an idealized vision of the Christian life that never, really, never actually touched down in the realities of our day-to-day -day world. After all, so far in this letter, we've heard the Apostle Paul offer his beloved protege some pretty lofty, riveting calls from the ramparts. Remember? Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God. Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Follow the pattern, the sound teaching you've received. Guard the gospel, the precious treasure entrusted to you. It would be easy for us to misread Paul as he issues these triumphant calls to Timothy and to us. Misunderstanding him as having an ever-exultant, ever-optimistic, ever-rose-colored view of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Being out of touch the realities of our world. And that would leave us a little flat, right? Because we know that wouldn't match up with what it's really like to be a Christian in the day-to-day. -day. But that way of reading 2 Timothy is actually way off base. Rather than this letter offering us an out-of-touch pep rally for the constant cloud nine Christianity, in actuality, it provides us with one of the most sobering close-ups of what we might call the good, the bad, and the ugly of the Christian life. There's a refreshing realness here which honestly testifies to the broken realities of our fallen world and our wounded lives as believers. And our passage today demonstrates this in spades. So I'd like to ask you to stand now as I read God's word for us this morning. Again, we're in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 to 18. This is the word of God. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered 
at Ephesus. Please be seated. EBF Church family, today we're going to behold in the real life experiences of the Apostle Paul at the very end of his ministry how the Christian life invites real suffering, requires real relationships, and unveils real commitments. Okay, that's where we're going today. So let's start by seeing how this passage teaches us that the Christian life invites real suffering. We can really only see this when we remember the broader context of the letter, which is that Paul is writing quite desperately at times from Roman prison awaiting imminent execution. Okay, the context of this letter is Paul's harsh imprisonment and suffering for the gospel. And he has already admonished Timothy to not be ashamed of Paul as a prisoner and to share in suffering for the gospel. That's already out there on the table. Paul is saying with great clarity as his earthly life sunsets, share in suffering with me, Timothy, for this is what it inevitably means to live out the Christian life in a way that, that's consistent with the fact we follow a crucified Savior who was a man of sorrows, despised and rejected. An inconvenient truth, right? We often forget that. Paul wants that to be at the forefront of our thinking. The fact is, Paul is experiencing real suffering as he's pinning this letter to his beloved son in the faith. This is not cloud nine Christianity, and this is not a facade of difficulty. It's real. Here in this passage alone, just these verses, we learn that Paul was deserted at the time of his arrest, that he has remained mostly neglected even by his once close friends and ministry colleagues, more on that in a moment, and that he's currently in chains literally as he writes this letter. And it's important to see that Paul doesn't view this suffering, what's happening to him as some kind of outlier, as a strange thing. He assumes that this comes with the territory of being a Christian. Why? Because Paul understands that the Christian life particularly invites it. See, there, there are hard times for all of us who live under the sun, right? I mean, that, that's just reading the newspaper and living in the world for a few years. We don't, we don't need the Bible to tell us that, right? But what we should be tuning into here is the fact that there exists a suffering of a particular intensity for those who follow Jesus, and that particular form of suffering revolves around something believers have experienced from day one of the church, persecution. Paul's trial that he's undergoing in the background of this epistle isn't just suffering in an abstract sense. It is the suffering of persecution because of the offense of the gospel message that he's heralding and living out faithfully. And while for most of us in the Western world, I think it's safe to say, this is something that's marginal to our experience and may even seem like a very foreign reality. For many of our brothers and sisters around the world, this is their norm. It's part of their real world. They know with Paul that the Christian life invites real suffering. To help us enter that, enter into that just a bit more, I want to introduce you to a Pakistani woman named Asia Bibi. She's going to be up on the screen here. According to a ministry called The Voice of the Martyrs, 
This woman, Asia, has been in prison now for over nine years for her private testimony to a group of Muslim women that Christ died for their sins and rose from the grave and therefore was superior to the prophet Muhammad. Well, for this testimony, this proclamation of the gospel, she was arrested, charged and convicted under Pakistan's blasphemy law, and sentenced to death. Her legal appeals of the ruling have gone on for years and continue to this day. Even if she is ultimately released, there is a high likelihood that extremists will harass and perhaps even execute her and members of her family who are also believers. Asia knows in a way that we don't the fact that the Christian life in the real world invites suffering. We ought to pray for her and others like her, and there are many. Her hope, like ours, is in Jesus' saving work on her behalf and the fact that Christ will come again to make all things right. We have that bond with her. But for now, she joins the Apostle Paul in a long line of persecuted and martyred believers through the years who know the trial of persecution that comes because of the gospel. But this text speaks about more than just suffering associated with persecution. I mean, if we slow down to really take in these words we just read, you can tell that the Apostle Paul is in a pretty rough place here. One scholar studying this text even noted, to use our terminology, that we we may see hints that Paul is severely depressed here. Now, I wonder how many of us have ever even considered the, the possibility that an apostle of the church used by God to lay the foundation of the New Covenant community, could suffer from depression and even have to battle utter despair from time to time. See, this is where we're reminded Paul was flesh and blood, just like you and me. He had struggles just like you and me. Yes, he was given abundant grace to execute the most important office of the church, but that doesn't mean he wasn't human. We forget that. So if Paul, the Iron Man of the Apostles, admits to suffering in the Christian life and confides in his close friend Timothy that that things haven't been a cakewalk, well, maybe we can be a little more open and honest about the suffering that each of us experience in this broken world. It may not be persecution, but it is suffering in one way or another. EBF Church family, does our vision of the Christian life have room for this? Does our picture of what it looks like for us to follow Jesus have room for a physical ailment that's going to linger and ache for years and years? Or are we just so quick to say to ourselves, I just haven't prayed hard enough or I just need more faith? Does our vision of Christian community involve coming alongside of those who have mental and emotional problems and helping them through that particular brand of suffering that's indelibly marked their life? Or are are we so uncomfortable with pain and difficulty that we simply avoid these folks altogether? Does our sense of the work that we're called to do when we gather together include the work of caring for those who are going through significant times of trial right now? 
Church, there are folks in this congregation, there are folks here today that are simply suffering. It may be you. It may be the person sitting next to you. It may be the person that the Spirit of God may be impressing upon your heart right now. Okay? Well, I would say this passage is calling us to two things in this regard. Number one, we need to embrace and not try to deny the reality of suffering. Matt Wiley was right on when he said last week that if our vision for the Christian life doesn't have any room for pain or suffering, we know we've left the sound pattern of what the scriptures say the Christian life will look like. Right? We know we've succumbed to summer vacation Christianity at that point. And then number two, we need to step toward those who are broken, hurting, grieving in whatever way we can. We need to have that impulse to step toward rather than away. And, and part of the reason why is because, guess what? In due time, that same reality is going to descend upon each of us, right? What we would desire in our hour of need when it comes is what we're called to provide in their hour of need today. Now, you may be thinking at this point, but... I don't know anyone around me who is suffering like that, who is hurting in that way right now. In fact, if I'm honest, I really don't know any of the people in this room very well, much less know what's going on in their lives. Right? Well, thanks for being honest. <laughs> I think this is a, a big struggle for EBF. And it's one of the things that the elders are particularly encouraging us to grow in this year by stepping into greater relationship with one another. It's part of the vision for our church this year, our church community. It's excellent. And what we see is that this is exactly what the passage before us assumes will have to be the case for us to be able to care for one another in our suffering. Right? Indeed, this passage shows that the Christian life requires real relationships, which is another way to say you can't follow Christ alone. You can't follow him well without doing so arm in arm with other people, with the community of believers that Christ has saved us into, the church. It can't be done. And in these verses, we see this in Paul's life and ministry in a really unique way. We get a glimpse here of Paul's more personal side, more relational side, a side we don't tend to think about a lot. Most of us tend to think of the apostles, especially Paul, as these kind of above-the-fray super-Christians, right? Kind of superheroes almost. They just magisterial theologians, master church planners. They just walked on the clouds above the heads of all the believers of their day. You know? But that, that is not the truth. That's not the reality. That wasn't Paul's way. The book of Acts and his many letters reveal that Paul, like his master, was deeply enmeshed in and concerned about the lives of those around him. In short, the Apostle Paul cared deeply for others. And with this deep concern came the inevitable result of being deeply encouraged when these relationships were healthy and intact and bitterly disappointed when these relationships fell apart and experienced the ravages of sin and betrayal. Again, we don't need the Bible 
to know that relationships, real relationships where your heart is out there and you're entrusting yourself to one another, those, those are messy and they have the great potential to hurt us. C.S. Lewis, as always, puts this so well when he says simply, to love it all is to be vulnerable. If you don't want to be hurt, give yourself to no one, not even a cat. I can give a particular amen to that last part because our family has a cat named Vincent and, well, he has indeed hurt us before. So uh, I guess that's the cost of love that Lewis is, is getting at there. But in any case, these verses allow us to look in on the deep encouragement and the deep pain that Paul is experiencing because of these relationships, because he's so enmeshed, see? He's not at arm's length. He's in and amidst what's going on with God's people. And it's worth spending some time unpacking some of the specifics, unraveling a little bit of this backstory of what's going on here. We read this text, it's like, what, what is the scene? What is happening? Okay? Let's start with the painful side, okay? Bad news first of what we see exhibited here. In verse 15, Paul reports what Timothy already seems to know, that in his arrest and subsequent trial in Rome, quote, all who are in Asia turned away from me among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Now, quite a, a background note here. Asia is not the continent we think of today, okay? It's rather a province of the Roman Empire, okay? So a little smaller scale there. And the takeaway that is that we know Paul spent a lot of time here, particularly in Ephesus, the capital. And so we know he built a lot of relationships in this place, okay? There's a lot of people in view in this. Which is why it's so shocking when Paul reports, matter-of-factly, all who were in Asia turned away from me. Whoa. You know, kind of let that hit you a little bit. Now, as we'll see in a moment, this all doesn't mean literally everyone, but it does mean that Paul suffered a major relational blow when he was arrested and shipped to Rome for trial. The Christians in that region who were dependent upon him as an apostle, ended up beginning to say, Paul who? Now, Paul only gives us two names here, Phygelus and Hermogenes, and our best guess is that these men were perhaps the primary leaders and influencers that the rest of the group maybe followed. Or, it's possible that these men were among all the others, the ones whose sword cut Paul the deepest. The desertion, the sense of betrayal, may have been the most severe with these two because Paul maybe was closest to them or because Paul had the greatest hope in them that, that they were mature enough to stand with him amidst the persecution. But they didn't. Despite the years of personal investment, the spiritual riches that these men enjoyed because Paul was faithful in his ministry calling, when the fire really got going, they got out of Dodge leaving the hammer to fall down hard upon Paul, alone and feeling deserted. Why did they do it? We just don't know. But what we can say is that we have a text in front of us that's more realistic about the nature of relationships in this corrupted world. Right? Paul is reminding Timothy about a vitally important thing to remember as he takes the banner, right, takes the baton and seeks to build relationships for the sake of the gospel. There will be times you will be hurt. 
It's like those Disney water rides where you're told again and again as you wait for hours and hours and hours. One singular message, right? What's the message? You will get wet, right? You will get wet. That's, that's what you're reminded of. Well, Paul's signs for those entering the Christian life and, and entering gospel ministry would be just slightly altered. You will get hurt. You will get hurt. There will be people you are close to, whom you love, and you've done so much for, who will disappoint you, who will abandon you, even betray you. It's an inevitability if you are really going to be open and vulnerable with people, if you're going to enter into real relationship. Which leaves us grappling with the question, how are we going to react in light of the gospel when, not if, the same thing happens to us. Well, first, this text is calling us to see that we shouldn't be surprised at that point as if something strange were happening. And second, this text is calling us to ask where our hope and our sense of identity and security is found in those moments. You see, in chapter 4 of this book, Paul revisits this abandonment giving us the particular detail that at his first trial hearing, not a single person appeared to stand with him. Not a single person of the thousands that he impacted in his ministry. But where does Paul go with that? How does he react to that? Well, first, he utters his hope that it will not be held against them. That sounds familiar, right? We've heard that before. But then he says this, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Paul remembered and set his hope on the fact that amidst others deserting him, the Lord Jesus is the friend who's closer than a brother, the one who will never fail you, the one who will never be relationally unfaithful but will stand with you to the end. And so he could be honest about the hurt, right? Paul's not denying reality here. In the real world, people are going to hurt you. They're going to leave you. They're going to disappoint you. But in the real world, there is also a real Savior. That these experiences lead us to put our deepest hope and trust in more and more and more. And as the passage goes on to show us, there is indeed by God's grace, the positive side of real relationships, right? Okay, now we're at the good news. We can breathe a little bit. The deep encouragement and indeed the much-needed refreshment for the journey that we all so desperately long for. Which is another way to say part of how the Lord ministers to us in these times of suffering, in these times of betrayal, even betrayal by his own people, is through the ministry of his own people. This is one reason why we're, we're saying real Christianity can't be a Lone Ranger thing. It has to involve real relationship with other believers because they are so often the means by which God is ministering to us. I mean, isn't this what we see so powerfully in this other character in the drama here, Anisiphorus? We know nothing else about this guy. But we learn in these few verses some jaw-droppingly encouraging things about him. Paul tells us basically four things. Number one, 
Paul says he was often refreshed by him, which most likely means that Nisiphorus had been coming to visit Paul in prison, not a safe thing to do, by the way, and seeing that he had the basic supplies he needs as well as personal fellowship. That's what that refreshing looked like. Number two, Paul says that in contrast to the others, Anisiphorus was not afraid or ashamed of Paul's chains. You know, we have a saying, chained like a criminal. Well, that was Paul here, right? And there are, there's a certain shame that inevitably hovers around someone who's in chains, whether they deserve it or not, right? Well, Anisiphorus was not ashamed of Paul's chains, He wasn't ashamed of his chains because he was chained because of the gospel. Number three, Paul tells us that when Anisiphorus arrived in Rome, he searched diligently to find him. Anisiphorus could have just put in lip service, right? Launched a half-hearted effort to find Paul and track him down and then being unable, return to Asia and say, well, hey, you know, I tried. I just was so tough to find him, Right? The goal of such a search would have been a pat on the back, but not a demonstration of deep, committed love of Paul. That would not do for this man. And number four, Paul reminds Timothy that this was not an outlier in terms of Anisiphorus' life. For he prompts Timothy to remember all the service, all the faithful relational ministry that marked this man's life back in Ephesus. See, You don't hit home runs in the Christian life like visiting a very wanted man in a very dangerous place without slow and steady growth in Christ through the years, okay? You just don't get up to bat and hit the grand slam. That's not how it works, right? We might read this passage and find ourselves dreaming about achieving similar glory moments for Christ, right? These awesome moments of celebration in the mission field or some extreme circumstance. But this text is reminding us there is a lot of time in the gym of the Christian life, so to speak, in the gym of the Christian community before you can expect to make it to these big leagues. Right? And this, of course, was a man who served well in little things first. And gradually, by God's grace, he served well in a really big thing. And that's how it works. That's how it works for us. And in recounting and Force's ministry to him and others, we can't help but sense Paul's overflowing response of deep gratitude here. Right? Can't you just sense it? It's like overcoming him to recount this ministry that, that came to him in a desperate moment. And that response is expressed here in two hopes, two wish prayers, one for Anisiphorus' household and one for the man himself. One for his household because, guess what? While Anisiphorus was tracking down a needle in the haystack of the Roman prisons, the rest of the family was back home having to pick up the rest of the slack while he was gone, right? This was a family endeavor, a family ministry to encourage an apostle. But Paul also hopes for Anisiphorus, verse 18, that, quote, the Lord would grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. That day being the day of final judgment, right? The one where all of us will stand before God's throne and give full account of our life.
What does Paul pray for him? That he would be granted mercy. There's a bit of wordplay going on here. Paul is asking that the one who mercifully found him may ultimately find mercy in his day of trial, right? There's a wonderful sort of beauty here. This is all clearly a genuine response of thanksgiving from the apostle here. He's been encouraged and refreshed at a time when those things were very hard to come by. And all this leaves us to ask, what would it look like if we were to embrace and multiply this ministry of refreshing others in this way? Right? Well, what, would if, what if we were to double down on what Anisiphorus modeled for us so many years ago? What would happen? Let's dream a little bit. Well, I would say this right here is the potential gain of really being in relationship with one another as a church, knowing one another, and particularly one another's struggles so that we may know exactly how to bring refreshment and encouragement just as it is needed. Right? Will there be a cost to seeking to grow together relationally? Absolutely. We have to be honest about that, right? Until glory, we are going to end up hurting one another in intentional and unintentional ways. And there are times to our shame that we'll even abandon or betray one another. But that potential cost is well worth the potential gain of our community coming to the point where we're trying to outdo Anisiphorus and one another in the ministry of refreshment. I mean, think about what would happen if our church entered into a mode where we were seeking out ways to provide over-the-top encouragement for one another. Think about what would happen if we were as adamant and undeterred as Anisiphorus that come hell or high water, we were going to refresh the hearts of the group of believers the Lord had called us into and called us to love deeply. If that were to happen, I mean, it would be like an atomic bomb of love and peace, of grace and mercy going off in this church community. Okay? That's a good thing, by the way. You know, I mean, the world around us would have to notice at that point, right? Our neighbors would see something's different between us because despite the challenges and the hurts of being in a relationship, they would say, they are for each other. They endure through the hard things to be there for each other. That's different. That's not like the world. Right? The petty divisions that have plagued our church community in past days would quickly evaporate in light of the mutual love and respect that we have for one another. And the most brokenhearted and suffering in our midst would be cared for and embraced in ways they could never have imagined, all to Christ's glory. It is summer, but if I were to sign homework from this sermon, it would be exactly this. Let's get to the refreshing, EBF. Let's get to the refreshing. Let's see what ways we can think up to encourage a brother or sister here at EBF that really needs it. Let's see how we can outdo one another in intentionally refreshing the people the Lord is knitting into our lives. Still don't know where to start? Don't worry, I've got a few ideas for us. You could begin 
by writing an intentional note of encouragement to an elder of our church, letting them know how much you appreciate their sacrifice and shepherding leadership, especially while we're without a lead pastor. There is a heavy burden that they are experiencing right now in part because of that. You could begin by speaking an intentional word of refreshment to a staff member, an ethos leader, a member of your ethos community, or one of the many folks here on Sunday morning that are faithfully and quietly serving week in and week out in childcare, greeting you at the door, packing up all this equipment week in and week out so we can do this, so we can gather in this way. The possibilities for such gospel refreshment are literally endless, and the return on the investment is unthinkably profitable. Let's dream about that together, church. Well, the last point or outline isn't so much another section as a conclusion. In taking stock of what we've heard this morning, we have also to see that the Christian life unveils real commitments. This passage reminds us that over the long haul, the suffering and relational challenges and opportunities which define the Christian life will ultimately reveal where our hearts really are. It's like a mirror. It's like a pulling back the curtain. Right? Paul is not just haphazardly telling Timothy about these random figures in his recent past. Right? This isn't like an aimless aside. He's saying that the time of trial and the relational pressure reveal what's really there. And it reveals it in opposite ways. For Phygelus and Hermogenes, the time of trial revealed that their, their commitment to Paul and possibly even to Christ was not what it seemed. When the heat of the day came, their faith commitments withered as the real-world realities descended. But for Anisiphorus, the time of trial was a time of unveiling a deeply held commitment to Christ and his people no matter what the cost. And this enabled him to provide the Apostle Paul at a desperate time the refreshment that he needed to finish well. And of course, Paul is now setting these two alternatives, these two roads, these two ways before Timothy and saying, by God's grace, don't be like Phygelus and Hermogenes. Timothy, be like Anisiphorus. Stand with me. Suffer with me. Keep the faith with me in the dark dungeon where neither the sun nor the moon shines. But we have to realize by the power of the Holy Spirit who makes these ancient words once written to Timothy, living and active once again, this same call is now also issued to each of us. Be like Anisiphorus. As the real world difficulties ascend, know that the Christian life was made exactly for these difficulties. We will suffer and relationships will get tough but this provides us the incredible opportunity and the privilege of bringing encouragement and refreshment to the saints when they need it most. So be like Anisiphorus. Or, better yet, be like his Savior and ours. Imitate Christ in this, who descended into the real world to face all the suffering and the relational brokenness and the betrayal that this world is capable of. And through the trial of trials showed that his commitment of love to us is absolutely unwavering.
Christ Jesus is the only one who will never leave us or forsake us, who will help us in the time of suffering in all the ways we need, who will encourage and refresh us in the deepest places of our being, and who has said that he will indeed keep us and bring us through the turmoil of this world all the way home. Let's pray now for help that we need to follow him in that calling. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the way you have providentially ordained that these events would take place in Paul's life, that you brought refreshment to him at a time of need through your servant, and that by the Holy Spirit these things have been preserved and now recounted for us that we might hear that same call to be about entering into the real suffering and real relationships so that we might serve and love as you have first served and loved us. Help our church to grow in this. Give us grace, Lord. We need grace. We need hearts that are willing to hear this word and respond and step toward others who are hurting and trust you amidst those hard things. So minister to us powerfully by your word and your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.